Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. Our guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Zara Atik, Assistant Professor of Practice in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at The Ohio State University. Zara is a recent graduate of Purdue, and I had the pleasure of getting to know her during her time here. I find her dissertation research topic, Understanding the Emotions Experienced by First-Year Engineering Students During Programming Tasks, to be absolutely fascinating, and I think our listeners will too. So today I've asked her to discuss her research and also what it's like to be a researcher investigating something as complex as emotions. It's a huge topic. It's difficult to do. She's done a great job, but I know there are challenges doing that. So welcome, Zara. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest. I know you're just getting started at your new position at Ohio State, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to share my uh, research with the engineering education community. So I'm going to ask you to provide a little context um, about yourself and then go into talking about your research. So could you begin by telling the listeners how you came into engineering education? Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a long story. I'll try to be as short as I possibly can. But I started teaching computer science uh, while I was working on my master's degree. This is way back in 2004. Uh, since I did not have any prior teaching experience, I started emulating my teachers. Um, and very soon I was frustrated with the way I was teaching, especially the programming courses. Uh, however, I had no idea uh, why my students were frustrated, why I was frustrated. Um, and But a few years later, in 2009, I was hired as an assistant professor of computer science by Foreman Christian College, which is the first liberal arts university in Pakistan. Uh, it's called college, but it's a university. So unique characteristic of F uh, FC College is that there are many expats, mostly American, working there. Hence, I got exposed to new teaching methodologies, uh, education research, which got me really excited. So just to give you an example, during one of the faculty retreats, the university had invited Di Feng to conduct a one-day workshop on designing courses for significant learning. Mm -hmm. So after I had all of this exposure to teaching methodologies and um, education research, um, I got excited and I started to experiment with my teaching. However, I was doing this piecemeal because... Um, I was trying techniques uh, that I learned without necessarily documenting them or planning them. Um, my initial frustration did lessen a bit, and I did start to see um, my students getting interested 
in the topic, but I was still not there. Um, the attrition rates were very high. Students mm-hmm. were leaving programming. They were really frustrated with it. Uh, even if they um, decided to stay in computer science, they would ask questions like, so do we have to do uh, programming? Uh, will we be taking more courses which require programming? And I would continue to think, why are students so afraid of programming? And after um, a couple of years doing this trial and error, I thought that it's high time that I should now pursue a PhD. Um, I was sure that I did not want to do my PhD in computer science. I wanted to do something um, related to education, something that would uh, equip me with the tools to improve the educational experience for my students. So at the beginning of uh, 2013, I started reaching out to my friends who were um, either doing their PhDs uh, in the United States or they already had a PhD degree. And one of my really good friends at that time was doing his PhD from Purdue, from the electrical and um, from the ECE department. Mm-hmm. Which is and, electrical and computer engineering, right? From- yes, yes. Uh, and we had a very long conversation. Among other things, he suggested that I should consider uh, doing a PhD from a technical department uh, instead of going for um, a college of education. Um, and then he said that he would you know, get back to me after a while. Uh, So a few weeks uh, went on and he got back to me and he said that there is an engineering education department at Purdue and it's housed in the College of Engineering. And it's interesting that um, he didn't know about the department, even though he, I mean, he was in the neighborhood. Um, Anyhow, he connected me with uh, a then student uh, at engineering education. His name is Junaid Siddiqui who was uh, very kind to help me with the application process. And I submitted my application and I got in and I started in the fall of 2014. So um, I'm glad you mentioned Janed because he is, uh, I don't know if you know, I was on his committee. Um, Yeah. And he's such a a sweetheart. So I'm glad you got a a way to, uh, uh, we're able to connect with him. Yes. So now you're you're at Purdue, and you have this thought: Why are people so afraid of programming? Yes. Um, do you want to pick up the story from there? Yes. So I started out with this question. I mean, I had other questions as well, but this is the one that I probably was the most curious about. So I started with this question. I started investigating fear for my. Um, first course on research methods, I wrote a literature review uh, on fear that students have in programming. It was not a very good literature review, but I started there. And then I moved on to learning about motivation, especially self-efficacy, and finally decided to stick with emotions. Uh, Not just negative emotions, because that is what I had mostly seen. But I was like, you know, students may also experience some positive emotions as well. And it would be nice to know what they are and how they manifest themselves in in students. So after, you know, a a lot of discussions with my committee, with a lot of other people, uh, I started making a list of potential research questions. And I had about maybe seven or eight of them. 
And it took me an entire semester, uh, maybe because I was also traveling internationally, working on another research project. Um, but finally, I decided to narrow down my uh, research questions to three questions, uh, which are, uh, what emotions do first-year engineering students experience during programming tasks? Why do they experience these emotions? And what self-regulation strategies do they adopt? to deal with these emotions. Now, these questions may look straightforward, but answering these questions uh, is really hard because mm -hmm. of the uh, complexity of the nature of emotions, uh, especially because uh, the science of how emotions manifest themselves in human beings is constantly evolving. Right. So my next quest was to come up with a method of how I would assess emotions. And while I was, uh, like I mentioned, I was traveling internationally for a research project. I was in Tunisia and I met with a professor. Her name is Dr. Raja Rozi. Uh, and she works on uh, biological, uh, uh, physiological biomarkers. And she introduced me to electrodermal activity. So electrodermal activity is um, essentially uh, the, I mean, it, it measures the emotional arousal in the body. Um, it's essentially the difference between uh, the sweat that is produced by the body. If I were to explain it, whenever there's an emotional arousal in our body, our sweat glands excrete sweat. And EDA, which is electrodermal activity, measures that. Mm -hmm. So after coming back to the US, I started reading more about electrodermal activity. Uh, the more I read, the more I realized that EDA alone uh, would not be sufficient for me to measure emotions because EDA is sensitive to uh, a lot of factors, which some of them are movement. Like if I would move my hand and if the device which I'm wearing that measures EDA, uh, then the measurement would not be accurate. Uh, similarly, uh, also if the subject uh, has taken a drug, or caffeine, then it would affect their electrodermal activity. So um, hence, we really cannot control for all of these factors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so it becomes es uh, essential that we um, uh, also have other sources of data which would help us come up with a best estimate of uh, emotions that students are experiencing at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and this idea of using uh, multiple sources of data or multimodal data is uh, also supported by people who do research on emotions in the context of education or even emotions in general. Uh, and one person I would like to mention here is uh, Dr. Reinhard Peckren. So he um, has worked for a number of years on academic emotions and uh, his theory, the, the theory that he developed uh, is called the control value theory of achievement emotions is what I used um, for my research. Mm -hmm. So the theory informed uh, almost all of the stages of my research. Uh, I also want to mention here that uh, my advisor, um, I had two advisors. One of them uh, is Dr. Michael Louis. He connected me with uh, Dr. Edalis Buenueva, who is an assistant professor of engineering education at Utah State University. 
So Dr. Villanueva has been working on collecting and analyzing biomarkers in the context of engineering education for a number of years. Um, I spoke with her and she agreed to be on my dissertation committee and her input was invaluable. She's also a very kind person and always ready to help. So I was very lucky in having her on my committee. So now that I had sort of figured out what I like, uh, wanted to do uh, overall, um, the next step was how would I collect this data? Uh, where will I get the equipment from? Uh, so these were a couple of questions that I had in my mind. Also, uh, because I had wanted, I had decided to collect multimodal data, um, it was important for the data to be synced temporally. Uh, so, and I, I was trying to figure out how I would do it. At the same time, I was meeting with uh, my committee members in trying to, you know, fine tune my research design. And one of my committee members is Dr. Ed Berger. Uh, who you know, and who's also a professor of engineering education at Purdue. Uh, when I met him and I shared my ideas with him, he just immediately uh, said, uh, I have just purchased the equipment you need and you can use it. And I was so um, uh, relieved that uh, I didn't have to really um, work hard to um, find the equipment. Of course, I didn't have the money to buy all this equipment. It's fairly so expensive, to, right? It is very, very, very expensive. I just bought my first, um, like the wrist band, which measures EDA from my startup funds. And uh, after getting an academic discount, this device is about $1,500. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it's quite expensive. So Zara, since we mentioned the equipment, I... I know because I was visiting, I visited your defense. I have a sense of what your data collection setup looked like, but um, the listeners might be kind of intrigued if you could maybe describe some of the equipment for them. Okay, so um, let me walk you through my research design. Um, so I collected data in two phases. Uh, one was concurrent uh, data collection, and then one was retrospective data collection. So the first stage was the concurrent data collection in which the students came in and they worked on a pre-survey, a post-survey, and during both of these surveys, they worked on programming problems for 30 minutes. And all of what they were doing was recorded as a screen capture. Uh, and of course, the data from the surveys was also being saved behind the scenes in Qualtrics. In addition to this, uh, there was an eye tracking device which was tracking their eye gaze data. There was a webcam which was recording their facial expression. And then there was uh, this device called the shimmer device which I had attached on their ankle because uh, if you remember, I mentioned that EDA is sensitive uh, to movement mm -hmm. and because they had to type. So I connected this device to their ankle mm -hmm. um, so that uh, there is very little movement. 
And this hypothetically, device, hypothetically, you know, there could be a very anxious student who would, you know, constantly move their legs, but um, sort of assuming that didn't happen, um, I, I connected the device to their ankle. And um, that's the setup for my concurrent data collection. Now, after a few days, I invited them to, um, to come back and rewatch the video of the screen capture with me. And we um, rewatched two minute chunks at a time. And after every two minutes, I asked them about what emotions they thought they experienced during those two minutes, why they experienced those emotions, and what did they do to deal with those emotions. And uh, I just told you that I collected their eyes data and their facial expression data. So these two sources of data were used as secondary sources of data to help the students recall during the retrospective think aloud interview. Because one of the drawbacks of a retrospective think aloud is recall. Uh, I mean, we say that students or our subjects uh, may not be able to recall what they did during the uh, data collection session. So there's research out there which suggests that eye gaze scan path and facial expressions help students recall. And the third thing was a video of their screen capture. So they exactly saw what they did during the 30 minutes, how they typed, what error they made, how they resolved the error. So all these three sources of data combined, um, I think helped, helped them recall what they did during um, the 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, in a nutshell, my research design. Um, I also conducted two pilot studies, one before my uh, proposal defense and one after my proposal defense, after incorporating feedback from my committee. And these two pilot studies really helped me fine tune my data collection methods and also my data analysis methods. Uh, because this was really new for me. And it was, re it was important for me to uh, conduct these pilot studies, to get myself acquainted with the EDA equipment, to get myself acquainted with the software, which was helping me synchronize all these sources of data, uh, to uh, think about contingency plans if something uh, could go wrong during data collection. So those two pilot studies were very helpful. Um, the, uh, then I um, collected my actual data, of course, after getting the IRB approval. And it took me uh, a couple of months to analyze uh, these sources of data. And then I presented earlier in April, um, and I got done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! I also want to mention that for my dissertation research, I uh, got awarded the Bilsland Dissertation Fellowship, uh, which is awarded by the graduate school at Purdue. And I also um, had the opportunity to go to a doctoral consortium uh, at the International Computing Education Research Conference, which was held in Finland last year. And uh, it was really nice to get feedback from the broader community before having to uh, defend my dissertation. Uh, so it was very useful feedback, which I then brought back and incorporated into my uh, my work. So I have.
two follow-up questions from that. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is probably your audience is dying to know what you found. So I'll ask you to kind of give us the big picture of that. And then when people are doing new things, I think it's always very interesting to find out what was the reaction as you were you know, going to the, the consortium and what people have, the reaction they've given you from your work so far, given that, yes, you've only had a, a couple of months of being done. I know it's the early reaction. But um, so first of all, what is, what's, what's your, the punchline from your findings? What do you tell people as the elevator speech? So um, the overarching finding is, and which confirmed uh, all of my experiences and also uh, what literature suggests that students are really frustrated uh, by programming, especially when they are uh, uh, encountering syntax errors or errors of any kind. Um, and then when they are unable to um, solve those errors. And when they eventually do, uh, there is a sense of pride that they experience. Now, there's also this... Um, there's a variation in the way students experience emotions. Um, and I would say that, you know, the same kind of experience may trigger different types of emotions uh, in students. For instance, one student um, was not able to finish all problems on the programming task. And he was uh, disappointed that he was not able to, and he was not proud of himself. However, there was another student who was also not able to finish all four problems. But she said that I'm a novice and I got two out of four done. And I think that's an achievement for me because I'm doing this uh, out of the context of my classroom and I don't know programming. I've never done programming. So I feel proud of myself. So the same thing, both of them were not able to finish programming problems, but their emotional reactions are different. Mm -hmm. So that actually leads me to think that these students have different self-efficacy beliefs. And in the future, it may be useful to investigate. I, no, I shouldn't say maybe. Uh, I think it would be useful to uh, understand and investigate the connection between emotions and motivation, uh, like self-efficacy uh, beliefs of students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's sort of like one overarching finding. Um, the other thing is uh, a lot of previous research um, has not sort of given us a fine-tuned understanding of emotions, especially in the context of programming. So they say, well, students are frustrated, they're confused, but they don't really um, give an understanding of or a narration of uh, what triggers a certain emotion and then what do students do once, uh, once they experience a certain emotion. Uh, so I, I, I forgot to mention that this study was primarily qualitative. So I have uh, descriptions of what students experienced. Um, and so this is a, a more fine-tuned understanding of uh, student emotions in the context of programming. Uh, and lastly, I would like to add is that previous studies on programming, uh, they have, and you know, the, this particular study that I'm mentioning uh, also 
acknowledges that they were not able to do this. They, the study um, interviews students over the course of the semester, and they, they mentioned that they were not able to capture uh, student emotions during the time when students are typing code. And because my research design allowed me to capture data while students were typing code, I was able to add to the body of knowledge uh, about the emotions students experience when they are typing code. Mm -hmm. So I would say these are like the three big things among others uh, that I found out. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm recalling one of the things from your defense, and there was a a graphic that showed a bit of a cycle of behaviors. And one of the things that I want to touch, I'm hoping I'm remembering this correctly, was that, and it goes back, I think, to realizing the variability of students' experience, that some students will find something really frustrating, and then they become more motivated to, I'm going to do this darn it, I'm, that's not going to defeat me. And then there's another group of students that give up and say, I wasn't meant to do this, I'm dropping the class. Um, and I remember we had some discussion about the interesting, that being an interesting point. Um, and I know I didn't prepare you for this question, so I'm, I'm sorry about that. But and I, I'm thinking you're going to be, in your future research, maybe beginning to try to decide what might prompt people to take that path where they're going to keep working on it versus the path where they drop out. Or am I just fantasizing about this? No, 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 no. I think I would uh, sort of connect back to what I just said about um, emotions and self-efficacy. Um, and this is because this study was just about exploring what, what emotions students experience, why and how they deal with it. This, uh, in this research, I did not focus at all on uh, things like self-efficacy. But this is one, I think, a really important future direction in which we can uh, we, we should try to understand the connection between um, emotions and self-efficacy and uh, why some students are likely to give up and some students are likely to uh, stick with a, a course as difficult as programming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yes, this is definitely on my agenda and uh, I would actually mention here that, um, you know, I, this was an uphill battle because, because of multiple reasons. And uh, I got done and I um, found myself at the top of the hill. But now that I'm here, I kind of see a very tall mountain in front of me. Uh, and I um, often tell people as if, you know, I just scratched the surface. Uh, and my, my advisor, Dr. Louis, also uh, frequently says that your dissertation is the start of your career. It's not the end of your career. Correct. And I'm kind of um, understanding why he says that. Um, so I see so much, so many other research questions that uh, can potentially be investigated in this area. Um, and I'm 
I mean, I'm really looking forward to doing more research uh, and seeing what I find. Yeah, it has really been an ignored area. And I think you're right that the work that has been done is generally in anxiety and fear and not broadening it out. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's lots to be done, which one of the things that I, I definitely want to have you share with us is you did tackle this very complex topic. And that takes courage to do and stick to to keep going because I'm sure there were days when you thought, what is this thing? What, how do I measure this? What am I looking at? Um, how did you keep going? Uh, First of all, I knew that I just had to finish. Uh, I had literally uprooted myself uh, my entire life back home, you know, my stable job, my family, and moved across the ocean. Um, so I just had to go on. Um, and I was genuinely interested in this topic. And I think that uh, also kept me going on. And I would like to share a small example here. Um, my qualifying exam was mostly about self-efficacy beliefs. Um, if you remember, I mentioned that I was exploring different topics. So my uh, qualifying exam was about self-efficacy in which I did a literature review on self-efficacy. I designed a study on student self-efficacy beliefs. Um, so I was... Um, at one point deciding if I should take that up as my dissertation topic. And I have the study already designed, so I can just implement it and get done with my PhD. Or uh, I should, you know, this area which is really complicated on emotions, and I would be starting from scratch. And I didn't even know if I'd be successful because there were so many challenges that I could foresee in terms of equipment and where will I go and how will I uh, assess emotions that I was um, thinking if I should just go the easier route and get done uh, with the self-efficacy study. And I met with a few friends and everybody was like, you know, why don't you just get done with the self-efficacy study and you'll be done sooner and all that. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll think about it. And after a couple of days, I told my friends, no, I, I don't think I can do this self-efficacy study. I need to do um, this research on emotions because it, it excites me, it's challenging, and it's, it's, it's somewhere not too many people have gone to. So I want to um, at least try to uh, experience this um, area and then see, um, you know, where we go with it. You mentioned your advisor a bit, uh, Michael Louie, who was a past podcast guest. And I know he uh, really takes mentoring very seriously. You, when we were speaking before, you said there were some things he did that were really encouraging and maybe to help other people who are going to be advisors think about yes. what works. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. 
Yes, no, uh, Dr. Louis has been instrumental in my in my journey, and I don't think I could have done this without his support. Um, so I would meet with him every week, and uh, it was, for me, it was a motivation that I should show something new to him every week. Um, and then he, I, I feel he was really interested and invested in my research. He would go to conferences, uh, go to relevant sessions, which he thought would interest me and uh, I could just add to my literature review and send me links to those papers or connect me with relevant people, which he thought uh, would be able to help me out. So in, in that sense, I, um, I'm really appreciative of, uh, of the role that he played uh, in my dissertation. And that was another motivating you know, factor that kept me going on. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to a question that I asked you. Uh, I said I was going to ask you two, and then I only asked one. What reaction have you gotten so far to your research? Uh, I think the reaction has been um, very positive. And I would... Um, give one example i mean as yours uh, you've been really excited about this research and that has been another motivating factor for me to know that there are people who uh, you know back me up on this idea because i do know back home uh, if i would you know talk about student emotions or uh, you know doing something for the students uh, a lot of educators would be surprised at that and they would be, you know, this is not something that, uh, this is not our job. I mean, we're here to teach, we're going to teach and uh, we're not, we can't really take care of each and every student in our class. So when I uh, came here to Purdue, I was really um, motivated by uh, by the positive reaction my committee had and then people like you had. Uh, and I've also been to conferences, I've spoken to people, I've spoken to people here at OSU. And when I talk about my research, they, they all get really excited. And everybody acknowledges that this is an area which requires more research, it requires a more understanding. Um, and I am really glad that I ended up taking this up as my dissertation topic. Mm -hmm. So the final question that I always ask all the guests is what advice do you have for people who are planning to research new areas and complex areas, um, things that everyone realizes is important but is kind of huge and amorphous and complicated? What advice would you have to somebody just starting out? I would say go with something that um, a topic that you're interested in, you're passionate about, because um, the PhD journey in itself is very hard. So uh, if, if we end up doing or working on a topic or working on a certain research that does not excite us, uh, it becomes harder. I know a lot of people end up finishing their PhDs, even with topics that they're not passionate about but it's it it becomes a very hard journey so so to sort of um i wouldn't say um to make the this journey slightly easier 
it would be uh, it would be nice to pick up a topic which you're passionate about that's probably my uh, number one advice the second one is again to pick your mentors and your advisors carefully because they're the one who are uh, shaping up uh, your phd journey they they'll be making a lot of decisions with you uh, so uh, pick advisors who are genuinely interested in you and your research and your career. Um, and finally, uh, you should have friends whom you can talk to, whom you can went to, um, because there have been so many times where I've been like, I can't do this. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, there's a wall in front of me and I don't know where to go. And I want to mention one of my really good friends at Purdue, Saira, uh, uh, who is now a PhD candidate. And she is also from Pakistan, uh, from the same institution where I was working. So we have very similar backgrounds. Um, and talking to her and discussing ideas with her has been... Um, very easy for me and very useful and i appreciate that she was here with me when i was working on my dissertation so um, these three things are really important so it's interesting zara that the things that you picked all have to do with emotion you know be passionate have people that care absolutely you know um Yes, and I think, absolutely. I think that's there is research out there which suggests that emotions is what drives everything else, and not the other way around. I would agree. I would agree. And it's a fat, as you know, this is a fascinating topic, and I'm really thrilled that you got a chance to share it with us. And I am sure in the future we'll want to come back and do part two, and you can tell us what your new research is like. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. Yeah. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and for all the conversations we've had now and also in the past. Um, I've had some really interesting conversations with you and they've also helped me shape my ideas. Well, so we thank have, you. We have to keep on conversing. We will. Yes. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com. <laughs>